honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people, that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile? Then he said, Tomorrow. So he said, May it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frog, the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. So they piled them in heaps, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. They did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. The title of this sermon is The Unrivaled God. The Unrivaled God. And I desire this morning, church, that you would believe in God's power and then display it in your life. That you would believe in God's power and then display it in your life. You know, college classes offer an option where you can audit a class. Now, when you audit a class, what you're saying is, I'll go to the class, or I'll go on Zoom and attend the class, receive the instruction, receive the information from the professor, but I will not do the work that's required. I won't submit any papers. I won't submit any book reports. I'll pick up a book and leave it as I so please. I won't be accountable I won't have to actually do the hard work. And also, I don't care if I get a grade or not. In the Christian life, it is deadly to audit the Christian life. You cannot audit the Christian life. I think sometimes some people that have convinced themselves that they are Christians are doing nothing more than auditing church. They attend and they, they make the seat warm. They receive the instruction. They experience the music. They, they uh, enjoy the, the talks and the conversations and the friendships. They enjoy the inspiring message or whatever it might be. But then when Monday comes, they refuse to do the work. They refuse to be accountable. They refuse to let what they heard on Sunday affect how they live beyond those four walls. 
They are auditing Christianity. To audit Christianity is to have a false religion. That is not what it means to be a follower of God. You attend the course and you also do the homework. Because you know you are accountable to your king. And he will give you a grade. He will judge you according to your works, he says. Yes, this is not about getting into heaven or not getting into heaven, because that is secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's settled if you are a believer. But yet, there is this reality that you are accountable for how you live, Christian. And you will be, as it were, graded for your conduct on this earth. You are not given the liberty to audit your Christian life. Chapters 7 through 11 in the book of Exodus record for us the plagues of Egypt. Now we see here in chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, the very beginning of our passage this morning, there's kind of a warning shot, you could say. A warning shot is fired first from God in this event of turning the staff into a serpent. But then after that warning shot, then comes these plagues, ten plagues. The final plague, of course, is the straw that broke the camel's back, you could say. It is that final plague that finally breaks that hard heart, that will of Pharaoh to let his people go. But in between this warning shot and that final plague, there are nine plagues. And actually, these nine plagues come in three sets of three. That's why we're looking at these three, including the warning shot this morning. They come in three sets of three. Each set of three begins with a warning in the morning. Remember when Moses and Aaron go out to meet Pharaoh, he's told to go, they're told to go out and meet him in the morning when Pharaoh is on his way out to the Nile so that they would turn the Nile into blood. So it is with the flies and with the hail. They are told to go out in the morning. Each set of three begins that way. Each set of three has another warning after that first plague. And then each set of three ends with one last plague that has no warning, that just comes suddenly on the land, on the people of Egypt. The first set of three that we're looking at this morning is the turning of water into blood, the, the swarm of frogs, and the swarm of gnats. Before the, the plagues four, five, and six, the next set of three is the pestilence on the livestock, the boils on the skin, which is actually, excuse me, it's first the flies and then the pestilence and then the boils on the skin. Plague seven, eight, and nine, the last set of three is the hail, the locust, and the darkness on the land. And then, of course, the last and final plague stands alone. Plague number 10, where the angel of death comes and kills the firstborn of all the land of Egypt. Now, we gain understanding from the clues that are in this record of all of these plagues, that it seems like these ten plagues actually happen over the course of about one year. 
That's interesting to note. You see, the, the, the question is, even with all this information, why the plagues? Why did God do this? Why ten plagues? I mean, doesn't he prove his point after plague one or two or three? And why one year? Why take one year to deliver the Israelites from the bondage of slavery in Egypt? Why wait so long? Why, not just, why did God not just wipe out Egypt and set Israel free? I mean, that would be a lot quicker and a lot more efficient. We're all about efficiency nowadays, right? We, we ask ourselves, what, it seems like God is being inefficient here. Why does he do it this way? Well, some would suggest that each plague corresponds to an Egyptian god. And what God was doing here, he's showing his superiority and his supremacy over each individual Egyptian god, one by one, in each plague. There's an element of truth to that, but it's never directly stated in the text, and you would have to get pretty creative uh, with these plagues about how to connect them to a certain Egyptian god. The central purpose of the plagues is to display the supremacy and the glory of God. The central purpose of all of these plagues is the display of the supremacy and glory of God. Look look with me here. Chapter 7, verse 9. The Egyptians shall know... Excuse me, chapter 7... Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Jump down a little bit farther to chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 10. He says that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, verse 22, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. Chapter 9, verse 14, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 16, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. That's a crucial Verse. We'll get to that in the weeks to come. Chapter 9, verse 29 also, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10, verse 2 as well, that you may know that I am the Lord. God wants the world to know that he has no rival. And Christian, he wants you to know He wants you to know, dear saint, that he has no rival. Because we lose sight of that, don't we? So for this truth to fully take root in your life today, you must first of all guard against the world's counterfeit and then glorify God for his supremacy and give witness to God's power. Those are the three points this morning. Guard against the world's counterfeit. Glorify God for his supremacy. And give witness to God's power. First of all, 
You need to guard against the world's counterfeit. What do I mean? Well, look at verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. Beginning in verse 8. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So all of this really starts essentially with Pharaoh saying, Prove it. It's basically what he's saying. Prove it to Moses and Aaron and essentially to God. Prove it. ESV translates this verse, prove yourselves by working a miracle. Literally, it says in the Hebrew, give a sign for yourself. Prove yourself. Pharaoh challenges these men and God to prove that Yahweh is real. And these men, Moses and Aaron, are truly his servants. Now, of course, they do. Look at verse 10. Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. So they obey the Lord. And they do prove who they are in this miracle. But we see that even as Pharaoh says, prove it, he was never really ever planning on listening to them. Because look at his reaction right away in verse 11. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. You see, Pharaoh is is given the sign that he's asking for. He asked, prove yourself to me. And Moses and Aaron did, but yet he shows his heart. He never really cared about that. He never really wanted, he was never really open to their proof. He still rejects God. And so what he does is he calls for magicians to reinforce his hard-heartedness. That's really what he's doing. He's already hard of heart. He's already stubborn. He's already uh, blocked off to the reality of God, to accepting the authority of God over him, even as Pharaoh. He's, he has blocked that off and is not going to allow somebody to be over him And so even when faced with miracles, he remains stubborn. He calls for these magicians to give reinforcements to his stubbornness. Now these wise men were given a few words for these people that he calls wise men, sorcerers, magicians and the secret arts that they practice. Wise men are experts in their field, generally speaking. A wise man, how this word was used, was for somebody who was an expert or pro in their field, whatever that might be. They were skilled in their profession. To be a sorcerer means that they were a worker of magic. They practice witchcraft, is what it is. They were practicing They were practitioners 
of witchcraft, and they were accustomed and trained in the occult arts. This word magician seems to be a general term that includes both the wise men and the sorcerers. Literally, this word for magicians means engravers or writers. Engravers or writers. And that means essentially that they were educated. They were well-educated. They were engravers. They, They knew how to write. They were scribes, as it were. They were educated in knowledge, and specifically here, the knowledge of the occult, the knowledge of witchcraft and sorcery. And what they do is they imitate the sign of the serpents with their secret arts. Now, secret arts is, is literally mysteries. It's pointing to the fact that their, their craft and their whole ideology is, is, has this hidden, secretive nature to it and that is the occult that is witch, witchcraft and sorcery even practiced today and make no mistake it is practiced still today it is demonic in its source and it is not to be trifled with dear friend don't play with that stuff it is dangerous and scary and yet christ can set you free from even that but nonetheless the idea is that this whole genre of religion, this whole aspect of, of arts, of the occult, is that it is, has this hidden, secretive nature about it. There's never really any clear answers given, never any absolute truths. It's all secretive and hidden knowledge. And that is in direct contrast to the truth, to what it means to be in the kingdom of God. It is not hidden. It is a kingdom of light. There's nothing secretive about it. There's nothing hidden or shameful about it. God gives light. He gives clarity. The Bible is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The polar opposite of these occult arts and religions. Now, we see that these magicians, how they repeatedly actually are attempting to copy the miracles of God. Look again, verse 11. Pharaoh called for these, young, for these wise men sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, they did the same with their secret arts. Verse 22, notice, chapter 7, verse 22. In response to the Nile turning to blood, the magicians, in verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Also, chapter 8, verse 7, in response to this plague of frogs and the swarms of frogs, I would think that in response to having a swarm of frogs everywhere, the magicians would, sh- would show their clout by getting rid of the frogs, but in their foolishness, they add more frogs to the problem. Such is the way of the world and the wisdom of the world, isn't it? The magicians, in chapter 8, verse 7, the, agi- the magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt in their foolishness. They copy they imitate 
they replicate, or, or better, a better word, they counterfeit. They counterfeit the works of God. Church, you need to guard against the world's counterfeit attempts to imitate what only God can do. You see, this is how evil operates. It takes what is of God and it fabricates its own phony version of that. For example, true, sacrificial, faithful love is imitated by lust and selfishness. That is a cheap copy. Pornography, immorality, impurity, all of it is a cheap substitute for true biblical love. Or how about joy? Unending, deep, settled, soul-deep joy that is that is unaltered and unaffected by circumstance, true joy of God is impostered by the world, by distraction from sadness. Isn't that the way the world operates? You're sad, you're, you're, you're grieving, you're distressed, you're depressed, whatever it might be, and the world offers you not joy, it's packaged as joy, but really, it's just distraction. Have you ever noticed that? It's just distraction from reality. And as soon as that distraction runs out, the show ends, the movie is over, the music stops, the relationship falls apart, the drugs wear out, the alcohol dissipates. As soon as that distraction wears off, you're left without joy. Or how about peace? The peace of God. The peace of Christ. A peace that this world cannot give. A peace that the world does not understand. The kind of peace that only comes from a true relationship with Jesus Christ is counterfeited by the world. And what do we need peace from? Well, the world offers peace in the face of mental issues. Mental problems like anxiety, depression, fear, or mood swings. The world offers peace from all of those anguishes. And all it offers, though, is just a counterfeit of peace. It's not true peace. Because all, of, all they're really giving you is the numbing effect of mind-altering drugs. That's all they have to give. Friend, that drug that you might be prescribed from your doctor or that you might be tempted to go after is just numbing the symptoms of your depression. It's not solving the root cause. Only Christ can do that. Now, if you listen carefully to the advertisements on TV or on the radio, these psychotherapeutic drugs... They never have any promises. 
Have you noticed that? They never really have promises. They never have a guarantee. Ever. There's always this careful wording like may or could. Their sly craftiness is deceitful. But, dear friend, you need to know and be convinced that God has no rivals and you need to guard against the counterfeit of the world because only the Bible makes absolute claims, absolute promises, like if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That's a guarantee. Only, only God makes the claim that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. Only God gives the promise and the guarantee that if if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Only Christ comes with a guarantee. So guard against the world's counterfeit. It's counterfeit attempts to imitate what only God can do. Secondly, glorify God for his supremacy. Glorify God for his supremacy. Now, these magicians, they imitate. They counterfeit the works of God. That's what evil does. That's what sin does. That's what the devil does. Yet, even their forgery of true divine power is eventually uncovered. Look with me at chapter 8. Verse 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. They did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on men and beasts. All the dust of the earth became gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians tried in verse 18 with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on men and beast. These gnats, it's debated exactly what kind of insect this is. It could be gnats, it could be lice, it could be mosquitoes. Whatever it is, it's annoying. And God fills the land with these annoying insects swarming all over the whole land. And this miracle proves to be too much for these Egyptians to reproduce. It's too much. We don't know exactly why or the mechanics of it. It doesn't matter. What's being presented here is is God is allowing Moses and Aaron to do certain miracles and commanding them to do certain miracles knowing that they are able to reproduce those. But he's leading up to this final one, to this third plague, where he knows they can't match it. So he's baiting them. I love that. That's so awesome. He's baiting them into defeat. Our God is wise. He's sovereign, isn't he? Now let's take special note of their words. Verse 19. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, 
This is the finger of God. How amazing. First, they acknowledge God. This is the finger of God. That is Elohim. This is not a name, Elohim, or God. This is not a name exclusive to Yahweh, the I Am, the one true God. But what they're at least doing is admitting that this level of power, this level of ability is beyond human magic. This goes beyond anything that these puny men, these puny magicians can do. They can't carry it out. I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 23. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they planted, scarcely have they sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them, and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. And God asks, To whom then will you liken me, that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. He asks you, God asks you today, Christian, dear friend, who do you know that is like me? Who do you know that is like this God? Try and find one. He'll give you time. He'll wait. Bring somebody forward. There's nobody. That's the reality. There's nobody like our God. Isaiah 43, 13 says, Even from eternity I am He, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? When God does something, when He sets a course, the strongest might of men cannot reverse His course. Cannot reverse His work, His hand. He is stronger than men. Deuteronomy 32:39 says, "See now that I, I am he and there is no god besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal and there is no one who can deliver from my hand." God is in control of life and death, health, sickness, injury and healing. God is in control. And if he's dealing with somebody, and if, he, if, if his hand is heavy upon somebody, and he's trying to get their attention through an illness, or a virus, or a sickness, or an injury, if he's dealing with somebody, that man, I don't care how many doctors he goes to, cannot be healed until God lifts his hand. You might be wondering, why am I ailing? And why, is it, why am I having no, no relief from my ailment? Because God is dealing with you. He's trying to teach you a lesson, and you haven't learned it yet, friend. So listen to him. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? No human being can question God. What's blasphemous is, what, is that some do. Some do ask God, what are you thinking, God? Christian, I know we can, we can think that way at times, can't we? In our darkest of nights, 
in the deepest of grief, we can ask God and begin to question, God, what are you doing? What have you done? You messed up. Surely this isn't what you meant to happen. And his reply is, I intended exactly for that to happen. Nobody can question God. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. There is no one like him. These magicians not only acknowledge that this work is the finger of God that is greater than them, but notice the specific wording. This great miracle that they cannot reproduce is the finger of God. Striking. It's not his great might. It's not his sum total of his power. It's not even his outstretched arm, but his finger. This is God's finger. They are aware that this miracle that they're witnessing and that they cannot reproduce, they are keenly aware that Great as it is, great a miracle and a plague as it is, it is but a small fraction of the infinite power of the one true God. It's his finger. Job 5.9 says, Who does great, speaking of God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Again, Job 9 verse 10, speaking of, of God who does great things, unfathomable, and wondrous works without number. There's no book, there's no scroll, there's no database, there's no cloud that can store all the information of the wonders of God. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Do you delight in the works of God? Are you amazed at what he does in your life? Are you amazed at his salvation? Are you amazed at his faithfulness and his goodness and his provision and his mighty acts in your life day to day? Study them. Study them. Open God's word and understand your God. Study him. And what he has done. Genesis 18, 14 says, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? It's a rhetorical question, of course. The answer is no. There is nothing too difficult for the Lord. There is nothing that he cannot do. There is no great act that he cannot perform. No majestic work that he cannot accomplish. Turn with me to Psalm Chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, verse 3. There should be a familiar word in this verse for us. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. Then he looks at himself. What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You see, 
the galaxies, planets, the solar system, in its vastness and its greatness and its wonder, we're still trying to make telescopes that will find the end. We haven't got there yet. Even with all of our technological advances, we still haven't seen the end yet. All of that is just a product of his finger. He didn't even have to get up, you could say. He didn't have to roll up his sleeves and put on a back brace. He didn't have to put his back into it and put his, put his elbow into it with some elbow grease to make the galaxies. No, it was the product of a finger of God. How great he is. Psalm 77. Turn with me there. I want you to see this. Psalm chapter 77. Since you're there. Beginning in verse 11. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. Dear Christian, you need to not forget how great and powerful your God is. In your mind's eye, dear saint, do not let your trial look bigger than your God. He says, muse, that is, meditate on his deeds. Read about what he did in the Bible in the morning and then chew on it the rest of the day. Great and awesome are his deeds. And the way that he makes his power most clearly known and displayed among the world is in verse 15. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Now by faith we are children of Abraham, Galatians says. Romans tells us that we are grafted into the, into the tree, the olive tree of Israel. So we reap the benefits of this reality. Though we are not Israelites ourselves, we are, as it were, Israelites in Christ. And he says, after cataloging and describing how great, just generally speaking, how great and awesome are God's deeds, his way is holy, God, there's no God that's great like our God, he works wonders, you make known your strength, and then he narrows it down specifically. How do we see the power of God? In the redemption of his people. In saving us. Dear friend, I don't know if you realize this, but if you don't know Christ, if you have not placed your faith in him and submitted your life to him in repentance and obedience and faith, then you are a slave of sin. And there is no hope for you. And you are right now separated from God. 
and you are walking and living, as it were, towards this destination where that separation that you experience from God right now will be eternally stamped in cement. And you will be eternally separated from the goodness of God. And you will only experience His wrath in hell for all eternity because of your sin and your rejection of Him. Because you are like Pharaoh, who though you see all these things, though you know all these things about the one true God, you continually reject Him. And you won't receive Him as your Lord and your Master. But... The great power of God is that he sent his son to live on this earth, to live the righteous life that you cannot match up to in your place. He lived that in your place. And then, though perfect, he was slaughtered as a perfect lamb. He was crucified on the cross. And there on the cross, he not only experienced a physical torment of crucifixion, but he experienced the spiritual torment of of being rejected by his God to the point where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why is it like I'm in hell right now? Why are you treating me this way? And God's answer through the silence, as it were, is because I'm treating you the way I should treat my people so that I can treat my people the way that I treat you. That is the power of God. And through that, if you believe in that, friend, you will be free from the tyranny and the guilt of sin. Church, we need to glorify God for His unrivaled power and supremacy. Specifically, how? How, as a Christian, can you glorify God for all His unrivaled power and supremacy? Well, we can sing about it. We can talk about it. I can yell about it for an hour. But we can also live it out in our faith. 1 Corinthians 2, 5 says that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. What do we do with the power of God? We put our faith on it. Christian, where do you put your trust this morning? The wisdom of men? the opinions and the statistics and policies of men? No. Put your faith on the power of God. Don't depend on the government to make all things right, to bring true justice, to heal social scars. These are only things that God can do. The government's attempt at true peace and justice and healing is like the magicians trying to imitate what only God can do. And only God can bring those things through the gospel of Christ. We all want to be healthy, right? We all want uh, to live this life without illness and pain. But we forget that life and breath and all things come from God and He is the one who gives you your breath, Christian. So you need to trust him that he will protect you from harm. And nothing happens to you that is not in his control. You need to trust him. Christian, you need to trust him that he will take, he, that he will take action in your home. He will step into your, even your home. 
even your relationships that you have. Christian, you don't have to take things into your own hands. You don't have to manipulate to get your way. You don't have to give up because you don't have to rely on your own strength to make it through and to deal. God is fully capable of changing your husband, your wife, your children, your boss, your friend. He is able to give peace. He is able to give restoration when it all seems hopeless. You need to believe. That is how you glorify God in his unrivaled power and his supremacy. Trust him. Just trust him. Lastly, give witness to God's power. Now, we've already seen that the central purpose of all of these plagues was to display the supremacy and the glory of God, right? We've already seen that. Exodus 7.17, Exodus 8.10, God explicitly says, that's why I'm doing these things, so that you would know who I am, that you would know that I am God, there's nobody like me, and my great power. But today, how do we see the power of God on display today? Now, of course, we, we know that great disasters do come from God. It's all within his sovereignty. COVID, hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, whatever it is, is from God. And so we, we can attribute these global events, we can attribute these natural disasters to God's sovereignty and his will. But nothing like these events of Exodus happened today. Nobody walks up to a president and says, if you don't do things God's way, I'm going to wave this stick around and this natural disaster is going to happen right after I say it. That doesn't happen today. So how does God display his supremacy and his great power to a world that doesn't know him? 1 Timothy 3.15 says, But in case I am delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. To be a pillar of the truth in this world as a church is like being a pillar of society. That's how it was used in those times, is to be a leader. That is, this The place that the world looks to for truth is the church, is us. This is is where people should go to know about God. And you, Christian, are where people should go to know about God. In a society that lets people have their own version of truth, This word support of the truth means that we are to uphold the truth. There is one truth and we are to remain faithful to it to not shift or change the truth according to the winds of the times. John 13, 35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 Peter 2, verse 12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
Turn with me, I think, to the best one, Matthew chapter 5, as we close our time. Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus speaking to his followers, to his disciples. He says in verse 14, Matthew 5, 14, You, you, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Church, no longer does God turn staffs into serpents, water into blood. No longer does he send swarms of frogs or swarms of insects to show his great power. What does he send? He sends you. He sends you to show his power. You, Christian, are his great miracle. You are his sign to this world. You see, the world should look at you, Christian, and it should say, I haven't seen power like this before. How does this Christian stay standing in that trial when they found out they have cancer? How do they remain standing and faithful? How does that Christian not fear when I am crippled with fear? How does that Christian survive even though they're so generous and they make a priority of the home, how do they survive? How do they have victory? How does that Christian have victory over their past sins? I know what he used to do, and he doesn't do it anymore. How is that possible? How can that Christian have so much peace, a peace that I crave for? How can he be unmoved, by a troubling situation like when he loses his job? How does that Christian love like that and forgive like that when I know I don't deserve it? How did their life change so dramatically? How do they stand when others give up? What they'll say as they look at you This is the finger of God. But you can't fake it. You can't audit this. This has to, the the reality of the supremacy and the glory of God, His power, has to take root and action in your life for this to happen. You have to stay faithful to Him. You have to guard your heart against chasing after the world's counterfeit treasures. Dear Saint, this this week God is calling you to glorify His unrivaled power by 
by you placing your faith in him. That's how you glorify him. And as he changes you day by day, they're saying, may you give witness to God's power in your own life. Let's pray. Let's stand as we pray. Heavenly Father, oh, you are great. There's nobody like you. You stand in a class all by yourself. That's why the angels encircled you and cried out, holy, 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 completely set apart in every way. Oh God, may we trust you as your people. May we go to you instead of the advice of the world. May we do it your way instead of our own way. And God, I pray that the world looking in would see the finger of God in our lives. And they would glorify you and it would draw them to the light so that they would come to know you as well. Do these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray this week that your people would truly do just that, that they would turn their eyes away from the counterfeit things of the world and look to you alone. You alone have the answers. You alone have the power. You alone offer true love, joy, and peace.